Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came to Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. For I too am a man under authority and have soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to one, come, and he comes. I say to a servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven when the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, he said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that moment. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired these words, inspired Matthew to record them, and that they have power not only in Matthew's day, but they have power today if we will hear them. And so we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, open these words now, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. My first hospital visit was when I was in seminary. The pastor of our local church invited me to go with him, and we were going to visit a dear old saint within the church named Ada. Uh, at the time, I thought that Ada was about 120 or something, um, but Ada was a dear, dear woman in faith, but she was very sick, and it looked like she was near the end. And as we were going for this, my first hospital visit, I kept asking myself again and again, how do we pray? How do we pray? I didn't want to downplay the power of Christ in that moment. I didn't want to just say, well, we're assuming, Lord, that aid is near the end. I mean, that wouldn't be very pastoral. But I also didn't want to pray with such confidence that would imagine that I'm not paying attention to the situation. Oh, Lord, clearly there's nothing going on here. Just a quick fix and we're going to go home. How do I pray? And I think the question is before each of us, how do we pray? You see, the story we read today from the centurion and Jesus is really a story about prayer. It begins with prayer. It begins with verse 5. When they'd entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to Jesus, appealing to him. And the word here, appealing, means beseeching, asking, making a request. And, and that's really what prayer is. It's making a request. This whole passage is really a prayer. The centurion coming with his need. I'm beseeching you. I'm begging you. And we, we know this in our lives. There's, there's a need for us to make our needs known. Sometimes people make their needs known a little too frequently. I'm thinking of small children right now. Uh, we were sitting at the table last night. Uh, we had some, some meats and some cheeses out on the table. 
and uh, my eight-year-old does not like cheese. Um, so she says to me, I want some cheese. And I said, you don't like cheese. And she said, I want some cheese. She's entreating me. I want some cheese. And I said, you don't like cheese. Again and again. Finally, I gave her the cheese. She took a bite, spat it out, said, yuck, it tastes like cheese. <laughs> it sure does. We ask for all kinds of things. But prayer is essentially, at its root, is, is asking of God something. It's coming to God, beseeching him, entreating him, appealing to him, begging him. And that's what the centurion is doing here. And in this story, we begin to see a picture of what prayer looks like. How do we pray? How do we pray faithfully in the face of tragedy? We've had horrible tragedies. I mean, two hurricanes in such a short period of time. A mass shooting a week ago here in our own community? How do we pray? How do we pray with confidence? How do we know how to pray? Well, in this passage with the centurion, we are shown how to pray. We're shown something about prayer. You see, we see from the centurion story that prayer begins with grief, often. At least begins with some kind of need, but for the alliteration purposes, I'll say grief. It begins with grief, but also we find that prayer is rooted in the gospel. If it begins in grief, it has to find the gospel. And ultimately, not only does it begin in grief and need and find the gospel, but ultimately prayer always, always points beyond our present need to our greatest need. Grief, gospel, and our greatest need. First prayer begins with grief. It begins in a place of need. The need gets us moving. Now don't get me wrong, people can pray without a sense of need. We can start with thanksgiving. But any of us who have lived for but a few days know that very quickly if we start being honest with God, we all have needs. And they're going to come out in our prayers. For many of us, that's when we only begin praying, when we have an enormous need, a grief. You see, in verse 6, we see that the centurion is full of grief. He's got a big need, a huge need. And we see it, actually, as we unpack the text a bit. It begins in verse 6 by saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And that, that phrase, suffering terribly, literally means tormented. My, my servant is at home, paralyzed on his bed, and he's tormented by it. Tormented. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus will use this exact same word to describe the waves breaking into the vessel. In other words, this torment is like a storm pouring in. My servant is in a desperate place. The centurion comes with his grief, but it's even bigger than that. You see, your Bible and my Bible translates that word as servant. But the older translators and the older commentaries would tell you, as I believe, that the better word to translate here for servant is in fact son. I mean, everywhere else almost in the New Testament that this word is used, it doesn't translate as servant, it translates as son. My son the centurion says, is lying at home paralyzed, suffering 
terribly. My son. Verse 8, again, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my son will be healed. Verse 13, Jesus' response back at that very hour, at that very moment, the centurion's son was healed. This is how high the stakes are for the centurion. It's his son he's talking about. His son is in torment and in need. And our prayer life often begins in that place of desperation. And I'm in no way suggesting that God has put us in that desperation. That's a longer sermon for another time. But I will say this, God can use even our most desperate, grievous moments to begin a conversation with us in prayer. As C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. And God shouts to us in our pain. It begins in grief. Begins in a place of need. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I was at a high school a few years ago. One of my parishioners invited me. He was a senior in high school and his, his world religion class, sort of sociology of religion, uh, was having a discussion and he said, could I bring my pastor in? And, and remarkably, they said yes. Uh, and so I came in and I, and I got peppered with questions for the whole hour and, 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 and did my best to respond. And at the end, I, I simply said to the students, because I was under very strict rules that I could not overtly prosthetize, welcome to Canada. But the, um, the reality was that I could just answer questions. So I answered questions. And then at the end, I said, okay, I've answered like 4,500 questions. I said, could I ask you all one? And you don't need to answer it. But I'm just going to say, let me ask you one question, and then if you want to stick around after, you can, you can talk to me about it. Because once the period's over, then officially I'm not under the rules, right? So you can talk to me afterwards. And so I, I said, I, I posed my question. I said, do you have burdens and pain in your life that nothing you're trying will fix? Do you have burdens and agony and struggle in your life, and you are coming to the conclusion that you cannot fix it on your own. If you feel that, and I felt like angel choirs were singing around me. It was articulate. I, they looked at me like they were getting what I was saying, and I said, if you want to talk to me about this, you come, and we can talk about an answer to those burdens and pains and struggles and grief. And, 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 and I looked at them, and then the bell went, and they all left. Great. But the next Sunday, the student who invited me said to me, he said, you know, they didn't stick around, but they're asking questions. And he said, and thanks so much. Now they're asking me. <laughs> he said, so you need to help me know how to answer that. And I said, well, Charles, that's, that's the job of a pastor. I mean, there is grief in our world. There's pain in our world. And it is for us the beginning, perhaps for some of us the very first time, the beginning of getting us to a place of prayer. And we see that in the story. It begins in a place of grief and need. But it quickly moves from grief into the gospel. It moves to the gospel. Prayer, we find here, is about the gospel. You see, why would the centurion have come to Jesus with his grief? Why would he have come to Jesus with his need? He, he had to have heard something about Jesus. 
right? He wouldn't randomly just come up to this guy. No, instead he comes with a clear understanding of who Jesus is because he's been listening to some of Jesus' teaching, it would seem. And we know that right here in the text because as we look at verse 1 of chapter 8, we read that when Jesus came down from the mountain, these things happened. First, the healing of a leper, and now the healing of this centurion's son. You see, Matthew's purposely linking this with what's just happened. Jesus has been up on a mountain teaching. And here's a little Bible quiz. Don't give it out loud. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. What's Jesus doing? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the greatest compacted teaching of Jesus that we find in Scripture. Jesus is up on the mountain telling them about the kingdom of God. He's telling about who God really is. And as he does this, people, not just his disciples, but others are listening in. Is it possible that this centurion actually sat there for chapters 5, 6, and 7 and then said, I need him for my son? Because see, what he's hearing as he hears the gospel of Jesus, whether he heard it directly or through a friend, he's heard about this man named Jesus who is announcing the kingdom of God, announcing the gospel, the good news. That word gospel, you know, it means good news. It's a very technical Greek word. It's the word euangelion, and I know many of you have heard me say this before, but I'm not doing that to impress you with my Greek knowledge, but to simply say it's very specific. Euangelion is the declaration of victory. The declaration of victory in the midst of conflict. Can you imagine, you know, back in the ancient Near East, long before there were cell phones, I know it's hard to even imagine that day, but long before there were cell phones and the ability to phone one another and mass communication, if you had a group of young men and soldiers from your community that had gone off to fight a battle somewhere, You didn't know what the outcome was. And so whatever the outcome was, they would send a runner back. A runner would come back to the community, and as the runner came in with the news about what had happened in the battle, the whole community would gather around. And if it was good news, if it was victory, they would hear the runner declare over the community, euangelion, gospel, good news. We won We're victorious. We're saved. And this is what Jesus is announcing in his teaching. As he begins his teaching ministry, Jesus says these words. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the reign of God has come near. Repent, change your life, and believe the euangelion. Believe the good news. You see, what the Centurion has found is he, he knows he's got this grief, he knows he's got this need, and now he's encountered the gospel, the good news. He's heard about how God is putting the world back together in the person of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that with this announcement of the gospel, as Jesus was teaching, one of the most amazing things happened. He wasn't just a speaker in word, but also a speaker Indeed. You see, what are we told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that this centurion may have listened into? We're told at the end of chapter 7, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew's favorite word for Jesus is the word authority. 
because it, it means power. It means the power to get things done. As Jesus would speak, it wasn't just that he would say things about the good news and the gospel, it's that they would start seeing the gospel take place in front of them. Demons would start, pop, start popping out of people. People would get healed. Lazarus, who is dead in his grave, comes back to life. This is the authority that they're seeing. No wonder the centurion comes and says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just Say the word. Your words come with full authority. Just say the word and my son will be healed. You see, this is the gospel that is being presented. But what's so poignant in this story, and I want you to hear this, is that the centurion is a total outsider. He, he doesn't have any angle to grab this Jewish rabbi's teachings to himself. He doesn't have any angle to work on this. No birth narrative that would say, Jesus, you clearly have to come and help me and my family. Because we learn in verse 5 that he's a centurion. And we're told that again and again in the text. Centurion, centurion, centurion. Do you know what centurion means? It's got the root word century, which means 100. It means this is a man who traditionally would have around a hundred soldiers underneath him. A centurion, ahead of a century. And these soldiers were the Roman oppressors. These were the ones who had come in and taken over the Jewish homeland. These are the ones who had come and oppressed them and taxed them to the point of poverty. These pagan oppressors. And this centurion, who's a military overlord, has a grief. He hears the gospel and says, I have got no claim on this, but do I need it? How will he ever, ever ask for this? By saying what he says in verse 8. See, he's been listening to Jesus close enough, it seems, that he understands there's a kernel in there that may just give him hope. He says in verse 8, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy. And, he, and he's not. For all those reasons and more, he is not worthy to have this man of God come under his roof. He cannot manipulate this man. He cannot bargain with this man. He certainly can't earn some kind of status before this man. No, this centurion, this leader of men of this pagan empire must bow down and say, I am not worthy. The problem is many of us forget how unworthy we are. See, it's easy for a pagan centurion to say, I'm not worthy. But it's hard for a regular churchgoer to always remember. Isn't it interesting in verse 12 that Jesus has this horrible statement that the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness? I mean, what he's trying to say is, get ready for some surprises the most unlikely people are the ones that will make it into the kingdom. And some of the folks that are sure they're in there for the wrong reasons just might not make it. Because the centurion understands 
what the Pharisees don't. That if I'm going to receive this gospel, if I'm going to bring my grief to this good news, it can only be received by grace. Unearned, unmanipulated grace. Grace, that which is undeserving to me. That's the only way he can have this. And he knows it. And because he knows it, as St. Augustine says, because he knew he was unworthy, he became worthy for Christ to enter in. It is precisely that stance that understands grace. I cannot earn this. I'm a sinner and you are full of grace. Isn't it interesting that that Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, that perhaps the centurion's been listening to, what's the opening words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, some other time we're going to do a series through the Sermon on the Mount, but do you know what that means? What Jesus is saying in modern vernacular English? Blessed are the people who are at the end of their ropes. Blessed are the people that don't have a foot to stand on. Blessed are those who are convinced they're losers. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near. Because I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can't earn what I'm offering you. You can only receive it by grace. We were at a dinner party uh, not long ago, Monica and I, and we were sitting around and everyone was exchanging, you know, their professional identities, right? That's what we do in our culture, right? I am defined by what I do for a living. So we're all doing that around the table. And uh, unfortunately, it came to us pretty early on. And I said, you know, priest and wife and, you know, that kind of wrecked the whole dinner party. So uh, just, you know, just careful if you invite us over. Um, the people right across from us were atheists and like really strong self-avowed atheists. I got their attention by saying, you know, I used to be one and they could not quite translate that. But through the rest of the evening, you could tell they didn't really want to talk about church. And so all of a sudden I had to look at the wide angles on how am I going to bring this up, right? Let's carefully talk over here. Nothing too direct, more covert. Um, and all of a sudden, and this is a good lesson for us all. If we listen long enough, we will find the angles by which we can present the gospel. Just listen. And so as they, as they talked, we heard them talk about their, their, their little girl, their baby girl. And they just loved their baby girl and they had all their hopes and dreams for their baby girl. And so near the end of the conversation, I simply said, I said, I've loved hearing about your baby girl. And I said, my, my question for you is this, do you want your daughter believing that her value and worth is based on her accomplishments? Is that how you want her to live her life? And they said, of course not. Do you want your daughter to believe her value and worth is based on what she's done, the sum total of her good moments? They said, no, of course not. And I said, I know, because you're good parents. You love your daughter. And I said, you know, the amazing thing, though, is we live in a world that is completely based on merit, it seems. It's all about how much we've accomplished. And everything around us tells us, at the end of the day, balance what you've done well and what you've not done well. And depending on how the scales fall, that's your value. And I said, you've got to understand that what Monica and I believe is that God has come into history to say that is dead wrong. And that he offers us a life that is unearned. And so if you want that for your baby daughter, I'm just opening up the possibility for a conversation. You see, that's what grace is. 
And the centurion knows it. See, prayer, we identify our grief, we identify our need. We hear the gospel and we say, maybe this could help, maybe this could address my need that Jesus is putting the world back together. And so we can't earn it, we come, and that's part of the gospel. It's good news because it's unearned. But finally, as I close, it's, it's about our greatest need, though. See, it's, it's not just about the healing. Verse 13, it's a great outcome, isn't it? He gets what he wants. He prays for healing, and verse 13, and his son gets healed. But we've got to be careful because we know that not every time we pray for healing do we see the answer to the prayer the way we want to see it. A number of years ago, I've told the story before, I'm sure, but a friend of mine, a pastor, a friend of mine, was, was, uh, had a back injury because he'd been playing hockey. Uh, pastors are really bad when we play contact sports because we, we go really hard at one another because we have to be nice to y'all through the week. Uh, so it's kind of like an outlet, right? And so he got really hurt in a hockey game and was laying on the couch and he had some Advil and his wife was a, was a nurse. And so one of the pastors called up, maybe, maybe the guy that hit him, I don't know. And he said, how's he doing? And she said, he's on the couch and he's got some Advil and he's in a lot of pain. And he said, well, we gotta pray. And she said, yeah, we've all been praying. And he said, but he's on the couch still. Who prayed? <laughs> but isn't this true? I mean, for some of us, we have this sort of vending machine understanding of how God works. Put enough faith quarters in and I get out what I want. And that's not how it works. Instead, in this text, we see that though this particular story has this son healed, it's really ultimately not about the son getting healed. You see, in our prayer lives, whatever these needs may be, God will hear us in these individual grievances. But ultimately, what Jesus is in the business of doing is answering our greatest need. See, what does the centurion say to him in verse 6 and verse 8? He calls him Lord. Lord. This, this military man gives Jesus a rank above him. He says, you're the Lord. You know, when he goes to that section saying that, you know, I've got people under me and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes, and I say to this servant, do this, and it gets done. What the centurion's really saying of Jesus is, clearly you're in charge, and I'm not. I mean, oh, the realization in our prayer life as we bring these concerns, these grievances, mixed in with the gospel, that he's in charge, not us. You're the Lord, not me, he's saying to him. One of the best prayers I learned when I was early on in Anglican was in morning prayer. And I'll be saying that prayer in a few moments from now. As you lay all these prayers before God, there's this lovely closing prayer called the prayer of St. Chrysostom. And it goes like this. Just listen carefully to what we're praying. We've laid all our grievances, all our hopes, all our dreams out. And then we say this. St. Chrysostom says this. He says, Almighty God, you've given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you, all our griefs, all our sorrows. And you've promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together, you'll hear their requests. There's the gospel. But hear this. Fulfill now our desires and petitions as may be best for us. 
granting us in this world everything we ask for? No, knowledge of your truth and in the age to come eternal life. See, that's what Jesus is ultimately doing with the centurion. Because the centurion recognizes that he's the Lord, Jesus is now ready to say, okay, I can now direct this prayer request to your greatest need, which is this. Verse 11, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, what he's declaring, the centurion comes asking for the healing of his son, but he gets so much more. He gets a seat at the table eternally with God. Because this is ultimately what God is always doing. He's always, through our prayers, pointing us to our absolute and most desperate of needs, our need for sin and ultimately for death to be dealt with. I often, I know in these sermons, especially when we're talking about prayer, we'll mention something about Sophie Jane and her healing, which was so miraculous a number of years ago and all those times in hospital. But it's caused my other kids to ask, do you ever tell stories about us? And so for Erica, not Sophie this time, I remember a number of years ago, she was really ill in the hospital for a whole week and we couldn't get her breathing under control and it was terrifying. And we were praying like crazy. And finally, the priest who was kind of overseeing me in that area, our archdeacon, the the big cheese, came to the hospital and I was a wreck. And so Tim sat with us and prayed And I remember these words so clearly. Tim just put his hand on me and his hand on Eric and said, Lord, I know that this man, this father is so worried about his child. We pray, Father, that you would heal her right now. But Father, I know there is a deeper worry in this man that is in the heart of every parent. Oh Lord, this day we claim not just healing for Erica, But we pray that you, O Lord, would one day, on the last day, raise her from the dead. Give her the life that she needs in your kingdom because that is her ultimate and most great need. Jesus comes and as we pray, we're reminded that Jesus is ultimately bringing about our salvation. As I went to that hospital visit with Ada, asking how would I possibly pray this dear, dear old lady. I finally said to her, the pastor actually, sorry, the pastor I was with said, I'll give him the credit. He said to her, he said, are you fearful? Ada was deaf as a doorknob. And so she spoke gospel back at us and said, yes, though I'm dying, I'm very cheerful. (laughs) And that, that, my friends, is what gospel prayer points to.